welcome to episode 28 of the Adult Music Podcast, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ, here with... Mike, that's me. And Mike I. we're there. ready to talk about some, uh, some music today by... How should we say... How can we say this without uh, getting into all kinds of trouble. I'm sure we'll get in trouble regardless yeah. of what we say. The fairer it's sex, the, the fairer smarter sex. sex. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's one from the ladies. <laughs> one for the ladies. For the okay, ladies, and, from the um, ladies. Actually, from the pen of ladies is sort of the main And I just, idea. yes. Okay, so w- what this really means is like we're covering all um, women composers tonight in the classical um here. And I know that we have at least one listener here in Japan that's going to be happy about that because um, she'll often come up to me and say, uh, if you hear about any recordings by women composers, let me know about them. And, you know, there are plenty now. Um, so, but the, it's 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 a funny topic with me, though. I'm not, you know, I, I guess women want to hear, you know, th- there are women that want to hear music written by women. But for me, it's like, you know, I just want to hear it really. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. If it's good, I'll listen, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's plenty of bad music written by men. Yeah. And um, strange music that I don't understand could be written by anyone. I don't know. But yeah. there's a lot of good music. It could be written by anyone, so. Yeah. Actually, I, I think you, you pick some good choices uh, mostly here because I found a lot I think of interesting so. stuff here. And I think our audience... Yeah, I thought so too. Will, this, we, uh, we have three recordings that you should... That I think you'll enjoy hearing if not, you know, want to, you know, make, you know, part of your life or something like that. Although some of these I'm kind of happy about. Well, we'll get to that when we, when we start talking about them. Yeah. Uh, and we've decided to call this episode... This is your title, so why don't you say it? Kim what is it? Me. Yeah, The Feminine Musique. The Feminine Musique is the name of this uh, title. Very elegant, uh, much better than the title I wanted to use. Girls, girls, girls. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure we've got that, double that the downloads. The end of us. We would have gotten what? double the downloads with that title, though. You know? you know what we'll do? Next time we do one of these, you know, we instead of calling it The Feminine Musique 2, we'll do that and we'll see what happens. We'll compare the downloads, <laughs> that's right. We'll, because we'll, we'll uh, see. and it it's also kind of ties in with our uh logo which has the kind of that kind of like uh adult movie sort of vibe yeah. to it you know the pink yeah. on black we're going to get downloads for all the wrong reasons and uh, that's okay as long as they come as long as they come <laughs> just trying to we're just trying to attract attention to ourselves people we're not getting enough um uh you know enough uh listeners actually how are we doing we get cuz when when we see the numbers that we get on um, Podbean, is that all of them across the board that we get for each episode? That's right. Is it there. really? Yeah, that gives us. So they the calculate total even numbers. the ones that we're sending out to like Apple and to yeah, India yeah. and all these places. Um, yeah. So right now, yeah, we've got what we've crossed over three thousand downloads, and um, our biggest. And we've done uh, what thirty? We've uploaded thirty. Uh, yeah, thirty episodes. episodes. So getting so an we, average we're averaging of a hundred. Hundred. Uh, a hundred an episode. Yeah. And, we we um, want to be averaging around. What do we say? Five thousand. <laughs> kind of yeah, long way to go. We'll give it time. We'll find yeah, the classical yeah. listeners there. Yeah. Um, All right. They're out there. I know there are a lot of classical listeners or people interested. I yeah. Know the that. U.S. is number one. India is number two now. Uh, All right. Thanks, India. Indian listeners, for um, yeah sticking with us there. Uh, sometimes Japan goes over India. Uh, depends on the week. 
Depends if and, people, uh, if our friends like us that week, really. Because <laughs> I think that a lot of those are our friends. Not We're sure. Friends of friends. No? Yeah. Are they all over, really? And we've got, uh, you know, various countries in Europe and uh, yeah. around the world, lots of other uh, places that I wouldn't expect we've got some listeners from. And, uh, yeah, on the various platforms, it's sort of spread out equally. So, um yeah, it's hard nice to tell to, who the typical listener is, but um, be nice to get all these people in a room and see who they are, because they could all fit in one. As it turns out, at the moment, be. anyway, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, before we get into the music, then uh, for those listening, I'd like to remind you uh, in the episode description, uh, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we discuss in every episode. Also, at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. And that's all the music in one place. And that's on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast there or follow the playlists that we put up a week before each episode uh, under the username Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see that full description uh, or the list on whatever app you're using, uh, come over and check us out on our host site at Podbean. Uh, if you search for adult music, you'll find us there. And all the links are clear and uh, easy to get to there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. That'll help us get new listeners by putting us in the recommended categories. And uh, if you give us a ranking or take a minute to write a review, that'll also help us get listed in the browsing categories. And that helps us grow the audience too. If you'd like to contact us directly, if you have any comments or questions, uh, please feel free to do so. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Give us a listen. Okay, so this week in classical music, I happen to have a theme, and we had one last week too. We had American composers, almost mm. all American composers. There's also almost. Samuel Coleridge Taylor. He was British. All right. But he started out in America. And uh, this week, our uh, theme is uh, women composers. We have um, Sounds like three a Jeopardy recordings. category. Yes, yeah, like a Jeopardy category. I'll take women <laughs> composers for 600, Alex. Yeah, it could be. Those would be, those would be difficult uh, questions to answer, I think. I'd probably um, get them all wrong, yeah. Yeah, probably. Although I, I know you a might few. Get some of them right. You, you I, I, know, them right. I know some women composers. I mean, I know, you know, mostly because... In the 80s and I mean, mostly the 90s, the 90s and the 2000s, there was a label called in Britain called the ASV label. And they are now, I don't, I don't know, they might have been bought out by somebody or they might have just gone by the wayside. But they were putting out a series of French uh, chamber music uh, albums. And I just started collecting these because every one of them was really great. And uh, they had a lot of, um, fr France apparently has a lot of um, women composers in their history, um, despite what I read in the booklet note of the uh, Louise Farenc uh, <laughs> CD this, this week. I'll, we'll get to that when we get to that recording. Um, and uh, so I knew about Louise Farenc and some other um, uh, French women composers, and there, there are quite a few of them. And um, but the thing is, they're they're not terribly well recorded. Like you'd hear like a you know a chamber work here and there, you know that would make it onto a recording. Um, and, and and some composers like Farenc would um, would get her. Um, I'm saying it wrong. Farenc, I guess, would be right. But um, 
she, she'd get her own recording. She had two piano quintets, and, uh, and we're going to hear, I think, one of them here. But, uh, oh, no, we're not. We're going to hear the violin sonata here. Never mind. I didn't say that. We heard... Never mind. I can't think now. That'll be on um, Girls, Girls, Girls. When, that'll be on Girls, Girls, that, Girls. Yeah. Although, yeah, i got to figure out how to put that on. i got to get two more recordings with of women composers. It's not not so hard to do these days. There are quite a few of them around now, especially. Um, but they've they've been around for years and years. And um, I may as well mention this now. The uh, Louise Farenc, uh recording... I shouldn't. I guess. Eh, why don't we talk about that? For I was going to start with um, the. You want to start with the, that? The, okay. I was going to start with the female one, but I guess we'll start with that since I'm already talking about it. All right. All right. So we're going to shuffle the um, order here. Louise Farrenc, Symphonies One and Three. She she only wrote three symphonies, and um, this is a performance by the Insula Orchestra, conducted by Laurence Equilby. And Laurence is a is a woman's name because Laurent would be the man's. Okay, this is a um, she's French. Uh, she's a woman born in Paris. Okay, um, in the booklet note, now she has she writes part of the booklet note, and it's in French and English. And I th- some of the things that were said were a little uh, eyebrow raising for me. And I went over to the uh, French. Uh, Version, which was is the original text in the booklet, and notice that um, some of these um, sentences hadn't been translated with absolute care. Uh-huh. I mean, they weren't. It wasn't terrible, but I mean, it was. But they they sort of changed the meaning of what the uh, person wanted to say a little bit enough to kind of raise an eyebrow. For example, um, one thing says that in the nineteenth century, um, the English says um, the um, that composing was the exclusive. Um, you know, sort of uh, prerogative of men, okay? And you, <laughs> I mean, you're you're presenting a 19th century recording of a woman there. How could that possibly be true? <laughs> because you've got a you've got a woman composer from that era on this disc, so apparently that's not true. But the word they're um, translating is um, the word apanage. Le composition était apan l'apanage des hommes. And apanage kind of means like um, that you have a monopoly on something or that uh, you have a prerogative towards it. Like you're kind of like, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're exclusive. You know what I mean? There's still a little space for somebody. But uh, it, it basically means that the men decide who's going to be a composer. So women could have been, but they would have had to go through the men first. And uh, so the original French is, in fact, correct. That would That was the case back then. Um Another thing, but the Equilby um, in her note, and also the um, the other note in the in this booklet by um, Christine Hoffmann, translated by Saul Lippetz, and I don't know how um, accurately, um, goes to great lengths to um, make this composer seem really great and just neglected. Um, it says that um, she uh, she was French and she uh, studied with. Um, German teachers. Uh, her teachers were two of Beethoven's teachers, um, Joseph Hummel and Anton Reicha. And um, the both, so she studied with them and uh, her works were praised and she married French styles with German styles and uh, there are all these little elements from different eras of music in her symphonies. And I want to tell you, I listened to this album and her music sounds like Beethoven, basically. 
<laughs> I thought it's really good, but uh, I, I I wasn't really buying what I was reading in the booklet too much. I think it, there's a lot of uh, special pleading here. Now that doesn't mean that it's not a good uh, performance, and it's actually a pretty spectacular recording. Um, this is well worth hearing, but uh, I don't I don't think it's um, terribly original. It's it is, however, very very good. Now she wrote these symphonies in 1842. Symphony number no. one was released in 1842. And Symphony Number no. Three in 1847. So Beethoven was had been dead, um, well, 20 years by the time Symphony Three came out. He died in 1827, and 15 years by 1842. So she she was kind of in this era. You, you got to remember in the 1830s in Paris, where she was born, the Romantic movement had really um, started with uh, Chopin, Liszt, uh, Mendelssohn, who were all there in the 1830s, and Berlioz, as far as orchestral music goes. So she kind of comes across as a bit conservative in that um, in that time, right? Now the fact that she was a woman probably did hold her back from uh, you know getting her works performed. There certainly weren't many other women having their works performed if if they were writing them at all i mean uh, there was fanny mendelssohn you know she was her work was kind of suppressed by her i think her dad they they kind of pushed uh felix into the uh, field and fanny would kind of had to you know play the piano and stay home and clara schumann is another one we're going to get to them too okay but anyway let me talk about louise Farenc's symphonies okay this performance on the erato label is done on 19th century period instruments. Now this might surprise you because it really sounds like a pretty contemporary sounding recording. But they're just these kind of like the way some of the uh the percussion sort of booms out of the uh the speaker kind of will give you a little idea that it's kind of from an earlier period and uh boom these instruments do. This is a pretty spectacular recording. It's very present um and it's very um very closely recorded. There's a lot of detail, and I really enjoyed that about this recording. Okay. All right. Um, this music hasn't been recorded. I wrote recorded often. There's no indication in the booklet that it's never been recorded before, so apparently there have been recordings of these two works. I don't know what they are, though. All right. Anyway, this recording of Symphonies 1 and 3 by Louise Farranc is a... Um, the first in a planned cycle of Farhang's symphonic music. There's one more symphony, number two, and apparently she has some uh, other works too. I would like to hear her um, shorter, you know, works if she did any, um, you know, one movement orchestral works. I'd be interested to hear how she handled those because these, to me, sound a bit conservative for their time. Um, I don't want to, but. But that's mean you shouldn't listen to them. I know we, everybody thinks that music should be always moving forward and so everybody has to have the new idea. But no, these are well put together and they're really high, they're really good works. Okay, they just sound a lot like Beethoven to me. Okay, so Symphony Number no. 1 and Four Movements written in 1842. Um, it's got an andante sostenuto intro. It means it's really slow. And an allegro main section. Kind of recalling those... Um, Baroque uh, orchestral openings. They'd start like slow where the people enter the hall and then the main theme comes. Mozart did this a lot too. Um, as uh, Beethoven, I'm trying to think. There's probably a work where he does it too, but it's not really a, a thing with him. He wanted to change everything. 
Okay, this this opens with a, sl a slow and mysterious opening, uh, some bright woodwinds. One thing you want to listen for in Farhanks orchestral music are the woodwinds. They're pretty, uh, this part is pretty original. She has a, a way with the way woodwind instruments sound. Okay, now once the strings come in, the impact is like Beethoven. They just kind of burst on, and she, she gets these Beethovenian effects with the strings. Um... The conductor says that there's a lot of um, like Vivaldi and Mozart type passages in the strings, but to me the effect is Beethoven. I mean, she studied the score closely, but I'm just listening from far away, and my first impression is Beethoven. Okay, and I said this French composer can sound very German, and um, she's before even Saint-Saëns, and Saint-Saëns didn't necessarily sound f terribly what we think of today as French either. Um, when I say a composer sounds French. The French sound means that they're paying special attention to the timbre of the instruments that they're using. Like the um, the sounds of the instruments are more important than any sort of like line or melody. Okay, they really want to have that sort of um, quality of sound effect going into your ear. Okay, and this is even true even into the in the Baroque era with composers like Couperin, Rameau. They um, there, there was a their pieces sound good on the harpsichord, but not necessarily on the piano. Although, a lot of pianists today are kind of changing that perception. Okay, but I remember hearing that a lot in the eighties and nineties. Okay, now, as as far as uh, Louise Farhanc goes, her only real French orchestral contemporary was Hector Berlioz, and he was uh, forging a new type of orchestral work. Okay, so he was kind of ahead at this time. He wrote the Symphonie Fantastique, and uh, he was very much um, paying attention to um, the orchestral tones. He was really the first composer to ever have a, what they call a Kleinfarben melody in his music. That means like uh, each note of a melody is played by a different instrument. Uh, Schoenberg really made that popular, and uh, Alban Berg and Webern. But uh, Berlioz apparently was the first to do it. He does it in the Symphony Fantastique in the um, fourth movement, I think. I don't really remember where it is. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first movement in Farhang Symphony, i got to talk about her more, is um, very, it's big boned, very reminiscent of Beethoven. Uh, the period instruments sound very modern to my ears. Without perfect pitch, you wouldn't know they were period instruments. Okay. I'm assuming they're tuned down a little bit. I can't really tell. Okay, the woodwind writing often asserts itself in this movement. It's one thing that differentiates this from Beethoven. She, um, she'll go for these prolonged like woodwind passages that are actually really nice. I kind of, I kind of almost wish they were the inspiration for the whole piece, and then you know to see what she would come up with that way. Um, it's very, it's often very unique for the period in the way it sounds. So the, those um, portions stand out. Okay, this is a very dramatic movement, and it's, it's beautifully recorded too. It's got real presence. It'll just burst out of your speakers and annoy your neighbors. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Second movement, traditional adagio cantabile. This is the song-like second movement. Okay, the winds take the melody at first. Again, this is like her preferred wind writing. And low strings outline the bass. Reeds and strings trade the melody between them in the B section. And the mass orchestration still sounds like Beethoven. Whenever the whole orchestra plays, it just sounds like Beethoven to me and her music. Okay. Um, this might have been just because that was just the sound that was in the air at the time or in um, German music. I don't think like 
composers like Hummel or Reicher sound particularly like Beethoven. And in fact, the fact that uh, Anton Reicher was one of her teachers is really interesting because he wrote a lot of uh, music for winds that was pretty famous at the, the time. So I guess he had a way with these instruments. She might have gotten a little insight into how to handle these this section of the orchestra from him. Okay. The third movement is a minuetto. Uh, moderato explodes upward like a Beethoven scherzo. And I said, I rather like the waltzing trio section. That kind of was a delightful surprise. Um, strings take the melody, followed by low brass. The brass sounds great here. It almost sounds uh, Wagnerian in a way. Okay, Not quite as long and drawn out as like Wagner's brass are, but uh, you kind of hear a little bit of the beginnings of that in this music. Uh, here you can tell your hearing period instruments, especially in the brass. They're kind of, they're older. They're a little harder to play. The brass sound full, and they're also duller in tone than modern instruments. They don't have that really bright kind of, you know, ringing sound that uh, modern brass instruments have. There's a little bit of a, like a burnish to them, I guess. And the fourth movement finale, the themes aren't quite so Beethovenian here. They actually sound older like Haydn or Mozart, okay? So she's kind of in the classical era here. Uh, the orchestration is a bit, also a bit leaner um, than the other three movements, and there's a playfulness to the thematic material. So this, the playfulness makes me think of Mozart too, okay? Because he had a real uh, quirky sense of humor in his uh, in his music, and she's kind of picking up on that here. The movement does build to a big Beethovenian climax, and it ends. Now, I want to say... I'm saying this music sounds a lot like Beethoven, and I just want to make sure that I um, say that that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't hear it. It's really well put together, and it's um, it's beautifully crafted. Um, the themes are all really interesting, um, and it's it's worth hearing for that reason. Okay, it's just that you you don't want to be saying, "Oh, this is like a this is a." a pioneering composer okay it's a, it's a, it's a really good composer and someone whose music is uh, well put together and that we should be hearing okay after that we have symphony number no. 3 also in four movements um, this one starts again adagio allegro kind of like mozart's um, later symphonies do um and Beethoven's first symphony as well this starts with the winds a, f a favorite um, tactic apparently of uh Fahonk. Uh, it's got an English horn, lovely, followed by everything else after that. Okay, we're into the main theme in less than a minute here, so this isn't like a long introduction. It just it jumps right into the um into the main section. And uh, this whole movement royals like a Beethoven symphony. The themes all lock together well. There's a lot of like elision, like the, the material isn't exposed like fully. It it goes into different sections a little more quickly than normal. It's kind of interesting. It kind of keeps you a little off balance. I really rather enjoyed that. I thought this was really good composing in this uh, work. Uh, there were a lot of wind passages in the movement and more than you'd hear in, certainly in a Beethoven symphony. So um, although this work has the Beethoven profile too, the um, the abundance of wind passages kind of um, lets you know that it's not him. Okay, the second movement, Adagio Cantabile. This starts with a slow clarinet melody. We're getting a lot of winds in this symphony. Opens the movement. Strings take over. The sound is like Beethoven's world again. Um, in this particular movement, I felt like Farhonk seems to be going back and forth between the tom, the, the French tom roll approach and Beethoven's kind of formal, meaning 
adherence to form or like approach or the, the whole sound of the symphony in Germany, um, in Beethoven's Germany anyway. I think this particular movement was the one that the conductor was talking about in the booklet when she said, oh, she's going between France and Brit and, Brit and Germany. That's not always the case. I just want to point that out. Okay, the third movement is a scherzo. A scherzo means joke in English. It just means it's like a light movement. Um, Beethoven was the one, you know, the fact that she even named this scherzo kind of points to Beethoven. Before Beethoven, these these um, movements were always um, named menuet and trio, and they were very formal. They were just like an old holdover from uh, the Baroque dance. You know, people would dance to them, and they would, and they started after a while to expect um, this type of movement to be in a symphony. And uh, Mozart and Haydn used them all the time, but um, Beethoven didn't like anything that was um, <laughs> formal. So uh, he changed the minuet and trio to a scherzo. So it's like a joke on the minuet and trio because it does have a, a three-part form, tripartite form, we would say. Okay, this is Vivace, very Beethovenian. He's got those skittering strings uh, that trade off figuration with the winds. The rhythm is uh, quick triplets, as in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. If you remember the um, Beethoven Ninth Symphony scherzo, dun 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 dun. This is um, it, it doesn't sound like that, but it's got that rhythm. Okay, so dun 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 dun, dun you know that kind of um, the the triplets. There's some pretty interesting harmonizing in the winds in the trio section. The trio section is the middle section um, of the. Um, there are three sections. There's the A section, then the B section, which is the trio, and then the A section repeats. Maybe it's a little different. Okay, uh, you can. Th I always, I always kind of describe this to students as like the uh, the Oreo cookie, you know, because they, you, the two sides you have the the black cookie part and then the white creamy part is in the middle. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, the winds won't. Uh, this is pretty. This is a pretty interesting movement. It, it works kind of like the Beethoven Scherzo in the Ninth Symphony too, where you're not sure if it's ever going to end, and then he abruptly ends it. That sort of happens here too. The strings, uh, the winds are taking over this movement. The strings are peeking in occasionally, trying to get back to the menuet section, but the winds won't let, allow that to happen until they finish their melody. They're very assertive, um, and then the opening repeats with the the you know the the a section repeats so there's a little bit of beethoven there you could also say it's you might even think of it as a uh, farhonk saying i'm gonna have my say and then we'll get back to the normal stuff all right the finale allegro i heard beethoven here again too there are even movements that seem like they're repeating chords in beethoven's third symphony there's a bit in beethoven's third symphony where these the, there are these just repeating chords pounding you try to um, indicate it's in the first movement to indicate the hero's like uh, mental um, issues and things like that that he's really kind of frustrated or whatever and you hear something like that here okay there are occasional interjections by the woodwind and they seem to be trying to calm the overactive strings and percussion which they eventually succeed in doing so Farhonk is about the winds and that's where she's fairly original too so you want to really pay special attention to that if you listen to this recording okay so my conclusion about this um album Farhonk the Louis Farhonk the composer doesn't sound like what I think of when I think of a French composer so I wouldn't be able to identify her as French if I just heard her without you know in a blind test okay um all right, you hear you hear a bit of timbral nicety, but uh, this is mostly German influence, and considering her teachers, that's not surprising. Um, however, th these are enjoyable works. Um, 
They're, they're worth hearing. They're well put together. Beautifully performed here, too. And you can sort of tell the conductor, um, Laurence Equilby, I hope I'm saying her family name right, is really dedicated to this, as is her ensemble, which she founded herself. Um, these these performances, um, they, they don't hang fire at all. They're, they're aggressive, and they're really making the best possible case for this music so it's a pretty exciting performance to hear and i i guess i was i wanted to talk about the music but i I should have really um um emphasized that more this is a really good recording it's a good it's an excellent performance and beautifully recorded of very good music um it's enjoyable and it's not going to really push you into any new um so it's not going to pin your ears back and make you do all this work to enjoy the the music it's it's enjoyable work on its own and it's dramatic it's got real content in it uh it's not light but it's not very heavy either okay um the recording has tremendous presence i even said that sforzandi this you know when the um sforzare is when off the uh the main beat there's like a, a marking where you you have to accent this note some of them with the to accent them the percussion kind of comes in at the time too and it really impacts the chest cavity it's a really good recording um Equilby's conducting I said is incisive throughout she's really she really wants to sell this music there's an aggressive drive to all the outer movements anyway a fantastic recording well worth hearing I would give this a listen everybody yeah I agree with most of your observations on this one Uh, my notes sort of follow along with that uh, Symphony One, as you said, you notice that she has sort of a thing for woodwinds. Yeah. So uh, right away from the beginning, the first movement, you've got a nice woodwind uh, writing, uh, and the tension builds with uh, varied rhythms. Uh, and the second movement, I really like the balance of the sections on this one. With the, you get some more string and brass here, uh, also balanced with the woodwind uh, in this kind of slow. Uh, more placid movement. Um, third movement has some more, uh, like you say, it's kind of a dance, but it's broken up with some more intense sections here. So you have these nice contrasts of dynamics and rhythms. And again, woodwinds played against strings well in the different sections. And the fourth movement in the first symphony, I thought had some interesting harmonic twists. Uh, and a nice finale ending with it. Uh, so the the character to me is sort of very much uh, early romantic. Hmm. Uh, it, it seems to be maybe a little bit earlier than the actual timing of it. I, I like this one. Uh, however, in the first symphony, I felt the first two movements were stronger than the third and the fourth movement. No, interesting. So I, I didn't, I, I didn't, didn't think feel of like I was lifted up uh, to the end, although I liked all of the movements. Uh, you didn't mention Beethoven, though. Did you hear the Beethoven? Uh, yeah, resemblance? well, that's what I meant by sort of early romantic. Uh, I yeah, felt, but to, I guess, to me, it's be- be- specifically Beethoven's heroic period. You know, the the Fifth yeah. Symphony, those those kind of words thir- from the Third Symphony to the Eighth. I, I could feel some, you know, sort of classical structures inside of you know, like broader things that are more romantic. Right. But I felt, you know, that sort of tied to traditional forms and things very much in the in Yeah, the she's, she's, she's kind of using traditional forms in an era that's trying to break away from them, yeah, I think. Which wasn't yeah. a good thing. 
Uh, well, I mean, it's well, not for us. Thing. It's not an issue. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, no. At the time, but, I could see it might have been. But especially you know. when you're listening to something new that I haven't heard these before, it gives you a lot of things to hold on to, right? Uh, while you're navigating your way through it. Yeah. Uh, the third symphony. This one, uh, again, really nice uh, woodwind parts right from the first movement, uh, and I like the second movement too. The slow woodwinds uh, and there's like a horn melody in there too, played against a broad string theme. Uh, the, the third movement uh, is very spirited, intense string figures, and then in the middle section, as you said, there's that nice woodwind middle section in there that I enjoyed. And then the fourth movement on the third symphony, I like the dynamic contrasts and the pauses that are inserted. Really keeps the tension. Uh, going and then at the ending you get those nice uh, timpani explosions that sort of build up to the end uh, so uh, overall in the same kind of character I really like the theme development uh, in the third symphony and I felt it sort of carried me through more yeah. to a climax in the end uh, yeah not a lot of surprises you know style wise or things but well worth hearing and the performance and the recording is really good so uh, you know, to hear something new that I hadn't heard from this period, and especially uh, with nice focus on the woodwinds, I thought these were nice works. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, so, if you're looking for uh, some something new, this is a that isn't too new. That it still has a little bit of familiarity. The familiar the familiarity, as Russ indicated, comes in the adherence to the uh, classical forms. These are you know and. Uh, that makes these works very easy to follow, and that's always a good thing. Once you get into the uh, the late Romantic era, the late 19th century, you have to know all of this uh, 19th century literature because they're writing a lot of these instrumental yeah. pieces on on works that they all knew. These these were educated people who were really you know art was important to these people at the time, so they'd be doing like a. You know, a good example of the one that comes to my mind is like uh, Francesca da Rimini, the the uh, tone poem by Tchaikovsky. And um, most people probably don't know who Francesca da Rimini is. She's a character in Dante's Divine Comedy. And her and her uh, lover um, read about all these erotic uh, goings on in books and then uh, sort of acted them out themselves. And they wound up in one of the circles of hell as a result. But... Uh, the, Ouch. The, the, yeah, the, the circle of hell they're in has like all these kind of like, it's, I, I forget. I haven't read this in a long time. It's really windy. There's like a lot of, and it's sort of supposed to indicate like the, uh, the, uh, circling around of thoughts in the mind, you know, like where you don't, you don't have any, a real stable vision. You're just swept away by passion and you're just acting on it. So she's in a circle of hell where that is. It doesn't sound too bad to me, really. But again, we are contemporary people, you know. <laughs> Anyway, but French, anyway, Tchaikovsky sort of tries to paint that in that particular work. You might want to go listen to that now, and uh, yeah. if you didn't know that, and uh, enjoy it a little more. Okay, on to recording two, which was supposed to be recording one. I've messed up the order here. Um, this is a um, collection of uh, music by uh, women composers, and it's called Female. And uh, there are a lot of remarkable things about this uh, recording. One of them is uh, the soloist. Well, it's there are two. It's a violin and piano. Lucy Bartolome is the violinist, and uh, Verena Louis is the pianist. I hope I'm saying these words right. They're both French. I don't know. Okay, Lucy. 
Lucy is uh, Bartolome is 18 years old, and this is her debut album. That's pretty unbelievable, considering what we're going to hear. She's an excellent player, beautiful tone, gorgeous phrasing too. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she sounds very mature as for a um, uh, for a musician of her age. Um, and this uh, album is recorded on a label I've never heard of before. The I don't even know how to say it. It's a German label, so I'm guessing it's pronounced something like Genuine. It looks like genuine without the e. Yeah, um, yeah genuine record label, which genuine. is German. Okay, and they they've got a few recordings out there, but this is the first one that I have by them. Now, one of the things about this label is they pride themselves on their engineering, on their um, um, sound the sound quality, and uh, I can see why. This is a pretty fantastic sounding it does recording. Sound good. Yeah. Um, so shout out to the um, I wrote this at the end, but I'll say it now. Um, the violin is placed very far forward on this recording. It's nicely balanced with a very clear sounding piano. Um, so let's give a shout out to the recording producers and Tonemeister. I guess they're the same thing. Uh, Alfredo Lacheres Hacobian and Johannes Endel. I just want to give them a shout out because engineers never get there to hear their names. Okay, but the real star here is Lucy Bartolome. Um, she, she's, she's pretty fantastic. Um, it's a program of women by... Of, of women composers. It's called Female. And uh, the first piece is by Rebecca Clark. She was a uh, British composer, English composer specifically, in the early 20th, late 19th century. Early 20th. No, actually, what am I saying? She lived until 1979, so she's pretty much a 20th century composer. Now, one of the reasons you've never heard of her is because um, <laughs> there's, there's the whole thing where women didn't really have many opportunities in the classical music world, but they were able to get in there. We shouldn't think that it was shut off to them, but it was 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 basically a men's world. And the other thing is um, she's very much, she composes very much in a romantic and even modernist vein. And by the time World War II ended, we were off into this avant-garde 12-tone music, and she wasn't doing that. So music of that sort just, you know, took a back seat, and we're starting to hear a lot of it now, you know, because it's being sort of resurrected now that um, tonality has come back into fashion. Anyway, there are three pieces by Rebecca Clark spread out on this um, album, Um, and the first one is very short. It's called Chinese Puzzle. It's a nice introduction. It's just a bit of chinoiserie. It's not really a very, um, you know, substantive or even indicative work of of her. Um, the booklet says that, uh, a Chinese friend inspired her to write it. Uh, one wonders how. Um, I wrote really pretty pizzicato orientalism. Yeah, it's Orientalism. It's got yeah. those, those angular Chinese melodies yeah. that you think of when you hear a Chinese folk song. Yeah, but you, it is like pretty. a really old Chinese folk song. Yeah. All right. If you if you think of something played on the uh, the chin, the um, that stringed instrument, mm. or um, what's the plucked instrument in China? I don't know. Okay. It's a charming piece. It's immediately appealing. Um, very short. Yeah, it's very short. Um, Pizzicati and the violins, angular melody, and the accompanying piano is gently percussive accompaniment. It, it just kind of gives you this vibe of um, distant lands, shall we say. Mysterious, the mysterious Orient. That's a word we don't use anymore, yeah, right? I don't care. I'm still someday. using it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. The mysterious Orient where we live. Yes. <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess it's mysterious in some ways. I don't know. I, st- I still... I still kind of puzzle about things that I see here after even yeah. after being here it's over a 20 Chinese years. Pu- 
a, yeah, there's lots of puzzles for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're we're in Japan, just to make that clear. Okay. All right, now we get back to uh, Louise Fahonk after that, and this is her Violin Sonata number two of 1850. This is the central work on this recording, so we're hearing a lot of her music this week. Okay, this is the central recording. It's a big piece. It's 30 minutes long, and they program it right away. Just so you have that little uh, aperitif with the um, Chinese puzzle, and now we're into this um, pretty meaty um, four-movement work. And remember what I said about her. She sounds a lot um, like Beethoven. And uh, that's actually the case here, too. Um, I had heard this one first before the symphonies one, so I didn't make the connection so much. And I even wrote, the opening theme is a bit reminiscent of the opening of Beethoven's Spring Sonata, if you know how that goes. With um, It's just this pretty um, spring-like melody. Uh, but it quickly changes by picking up steam. Uh, it's a full-blown sonata movement, 10 minutes long. And it's really appealing all the way through. The two um, musicians really make sure that the uh, the material is, is is heard and that the the um, sections are clearly outlined. So they're they're really excellent guides through this music. Um, keep in mind that the violinist here is 18 years old, and this is really impressive. She's she's a very mature player. Um, so that that just makes it even more impressive for me. Yeah, what uh, I got here. Um, yeah. Like you mentioned, her phrasing. She has a really fleet and light phrasing that mm. goes through these difficult passages. I right. mean, which is amazing. And then the thing that really drew me to this, because as you know, and anyone who's listened to our podcast, I'm not a fan too much of, uh, you know, violin solo recordings. Uh, they, I, yeah. I have a limit. I don't know. We're going to have to change that somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's just the tonal things. You know, I, mm-hmm. I can listen to cello all day long, but when I get to violin, the the hairs on my back of my neck yeah. stand up too much. But I really enjoyed, uh, especially on this piece, her tone and also the way that she seems to have control over it because she gets uh, a tone that's both warm most of the time her tone is very warm yeah. but when the sort of lines or part of a passage call for it she can sort of get this additional kind of edge to her tone that brings brightness into it uh, but mm. only on those certain you know places where it's called for and i noticed that here and i thought you know some even mature players don't ever seem to achieve that. They have this, you know, sort of sound that may be identifiable. Uh, but I thought for, especially for such a young player too, she seems to have a really developed sense of tone that is also adaptable to the, you know, line in whatever piece she's playing. And that came out to me uh, on this piece. And uh, even when that edge comes to it, it still seems to be sort of surrounded by that, warmth so i didn't find any where i sometimes get fatigued from uh violin sort of timbres i found hers sort of engaging and drawing me in more and more and so that was really impressive to me yeah and the recording helps that a lot too so it's like a lot of things really working for this recording yes uh not least the music that that's uh they've programmed it's all really interesting um, one thing I want to mention about uh, Louis Farhang's uh, Beethovenian-ness, Beethoven-ness is uh, the importance of line and form. In romantic music, if you listen to Chopin, like everybody loves Chopin, right? He's kind of closer to the classical era than any like 
romantic composer is and yet he's still he's doing this these romantic things in his music um this hazing over of the form to create a dreamlike atmosphere like you know if you're playing the piano you'll have the pedal down so that the notes don't all really register like a line it's kind of like this haze of sound coming out of the fog or something like that they really love those ambiguous sort of um form and sound and things like that classical musicians that is not the case with Louise Fahank she's Fahank she's um she's she's still got a foot firmly in the classical era I think okay I said that this particular work uh this violin sonata is less weighty than Beethoven but that's not to say it's light and it's full of appealing ideas uh this is music with a lot of structural integri- integrity and this is this particular one more than the symphonies it's really ear-catchingly pretty in parts there's this wonderful um sprinkled um piano figuration like you know this piano figuration like sprinkled in the treble the high end of the piano like six minutes into the first movement it just really caught my ear i was like wow that's really nice and it leads into the recapitulation it's a really nice idea um so i think you'll notice it when you hear it it really sounds different than the rest of the movement it's kind of surprising Okay, in this case, uh, the second movement is a scherzo. So she's flipped the uh, scherzo and adagio, the traditional form of scherzo and adagio. Usually the scherzo comes third. She's got it second here. Um, In this one, the opening violin line is flighty, buzzing toward a high uh, tessitura, and then it retreats. It reminds me sort of of a bee Okay, just buzzing around. Uh, the lines are fragmented in this, and then the trio section kind of uh, opposes that. It has this lovely conjunct pastoral melody. Conjunct means that the notes are very close together. Think uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. No, 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 no. You know, there's no real leaps in there. This movement goes on for quite a while. Given it's admittedly appealing material, scherzi are usually pretty short, though. So I was kind of surprised by this, but uh, doesn't overstay its welcome. It's really um, enjoyable. The third movement of Daggio starts with the piano, outlining a melody that the violin picks up and continues. The ebb and flow of the melody keeps the ear engaged throughout. And the fourth movement returns to a Beethovenian melodic idea that is used as a theme in a rondo form movement. I picked this up as a rondo. I didn't like listen to it repeatedly to make sure, so I hope I'm right there. It's light and carefree. A rondo tends to be. A rondo is kind of like um, you have a theme... And then there's a B section, and then that theme returns, and then there's a C section. It could keep going on. Usually it's just a B and C section. You could think of about about the um, the Rondo theme as being your house, and then the B section is the store, and you go to the store, and then you go back to your house. And then the C section would be another store or the playground or something or the, you know, wherever, your your job. You go there, and then you come back to your house. So you're always – it's Rondo means round in Italian. It means you're always coming back to the main melody. So if you want to follow that, um, there you go. That's what it is. It'll help you follow that movement. Uh, it's light and carefree. Um, had me walking on air. I liked it a lot. Uh, this, is, this is a pretty fantastic work. Not very, very weighty, but weighty enough. Um, it's very appealing. has good melodies. Should be heard more often, I said. And these performances are really great. Okay. Back to Rebecca Clark. She kind of... She's sort of the... Uh, the linchpin in this whole recording. She gets these short movements in between the bigger ones. Uh, this particular one is a lullaby. Um, her lullaby is written in 1918. We don't know anything about the origin of it, but I wish we did because it doesn't sound like a lullaby to me. It's kind of uh, ominous, dark, harmonic territory. This would terrify babies. 
Yes. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering why she called it this. Uh, it kind of sounds, it sounds very, um, it, it kind of, if you know the theme, if you know the uh, Schubert song, Earl Koenig, not the sound of it, but the story, what happens. It's a, a man rushing his sick child home before the Earl King can take him into the, uh, this, this fantasy world of, where the Earl the Earl King rules or something like that. It has that kind of like fairy tale sort of um, terror quality to it, but it's very slow, like a lullaby. So I think it's got like a lullaby melody, but the harmony just really makes it sound a little uh, mysterious, not reassuring. That's what I'd say. It's not terrifying. It's just not reassuring. Um, uh, there's a total change of harmonic color from what we've heard so far in this particular piece. And it also ends inconclusively not on the tonic. To me, a lullaby has to end on the tonic chord because it's reassuring. You feel like uh, all is well with the world and you can sleep, you know, soundly. Uh, this one does not end on the tonic. It ends on, I don't know what it is, but it's it's a, it's a chord of um, tension. Yeah, I wondered uh, about I, I w- this because yeah. um, it's brooding and somber, but it, it also said, uh, you know, in the listing, pieces, two pieces for violin and piano, but this is only one piece. So I'm wondering what the other the other piece may have been the resolution or something. Oh, maybe uh, to that. So th- this is sort of half of that total composition. Um, I wonder because I have this as um, the, what I read about it is that it's in a collection called shorter pieces for violin and piano. Yeah. So apparently, all of her short pieces got put together i mean this or, was written in 1918 but or, these were all written in different years yeah i, had, um, I think far the, apart um, from each other at least the presto notes said pieces two for violin and piano but then there was mm. just this one piece so mm. i don't know what the companion piece was for it but maybe that would give some closure or contrast to it but yeah okay well to, to research cer- certainly these these two uh artists on this uh, recording didn't want to have that closure Okay. Clara Schumann's music is next. We don't hear enough of Clara Schumann's music. Um, she was uh, Robert Schumann's um, wife. Her, her maiden name, Clara, Clara Wieck. And she was one of the 19th century's great concert pianists. She also composed. Um, she had a lot to do with Robert, who was going crazy, and also crippled his hand, so he couldn't play music anymore. So he started just composing all the time so apparently she uh didn't compose much but she did do these uh three romances for violin and piano opus 22 from 1853 so this is towards the end of uh robert's life he might have even been dead by this point i don't really remember what his the year of his death was um she played these with the violin virtuoso joseph joachim back in the day uh, he was one of the great violinists of the era, and he also played with Brahms. Okay, later he he premiered Brahms's um, violin concerto. Uh, the two you can imagine the two of them together must have been something to hear. This would have been quite a concert to be at, and uh, they both played uh, two three, these three movements from uh, Clara Schumann, which is really nice. Uh, these works are fully romantic in style, brooding melody in the opening Andante molto. And evokes to me the the first one the andante molto evokes the whole era that it was written in in the mood i mean this this really summarizes romantic era music to me <laughs> it's just in three minutes i mean there's, there's a lot of it but it kind of you have the um the broodingness you have the um the uh the uh 
what do you call it fuzzing the the not the lack of focus in the sections where one kind of melts into the other like it's a dream as opposed to being you know clearly delineated um so it's it's kind of interesting if you're curious about that give that a listen um these two musicians bartolome and uh verena louis um you know, capture that the mood perfectly here. They're very good at this romantic kind of style. The second, Allegretto, this is their second romance. The Allegretto starts off a little more quizzically, but there's still that harmonic murk that we get in romantic music that we all love. I mean, I think we still sort of live in the romantic era now, except that uh, it's all in movies now instead of in music. Um, I really get the sense from these works that uh, Clara Schumann was a woman who belonged squarely in her time. She was really... Now, we like to think, oh, it was a bad time for women. They weren't as free as they are now or became in the uh, 20th century. But her musical vocabulary, just the way she writes, really makes it sound like she she was psychologically... Um, you know... Um, well within her period of time she she wasn't like a fish out of water there i think she really belonged there just she she seems to have been one of these prototypical romantic artists um i like the main melody of this of the second movement the second romance it's more of a violent figure than a vocal type melody it's not really something you would sing okay the third movement is labeled in german leidenschaftlich schnell uh, it's the most technical for the pianist, who has a lot to do. So this is Clara showing off here over uh, the great solo violinist Joseph Joachim. Uh, she has to create a bed of cascading notes under the violin melody. Uh, variations of the melody are provided, and the piano has the showier, showier, showier part here. All right, so those are the Clara Schumann works. After that, we get the third and final Rebecca Clark piece, and the longest, that's six minutes. This one's called Midsummer Moon. Um, from 1924. So this is the latest one that we have on this uh, recording. Uh, it's more substantial than the other two. And this one's challenging for the violin. It evokes a late night mood and has some harmonics, which are, I think are really pretty on the violin. So you just touch the string and bow it and you get the harmonic of the note rather than the, you know, the full toned note itself. It sounds ghostly. I like the effect. And uh, double stopping too, which are very hard to do. This is when you're playing two notes at the same time on the violin. You have to get the tuning right. Not easy to do. The harmony sounds modal in this piece. Um, it's one of the odder modes too. It's not like one of these pretty church modes that make you float away. It's kind of. It just sounds like there are some really odd uh, pitches in it, um, which I rather enjoyed. I really liked that. It gives the work an off kilter profile. If I had a keyboard, I would have figured out what the uh, <laughs> what the mode was. I don't really know. I, I think it's a mode. That's what it sounds like, anyway. And the, 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 there sound to be some misplaced notes in there that wouldn't be in a normal major or minor scale. In the end, it's a memorable piece, and it ends somberly. The very last piece on this disc is Amy Beach. Remember her from last week? We had her big uh, multi-climaxing piano quintet. Although I have to say. I did hear the Tawkach uh, Quartet's recording with uh, Garrick Olson that's nominated for a Gramophone Award this year of that same piece. And they underplay all those uh, climaxes. I thought, it, I thought mm. they had a, their, their performance was a lot more mature and uh, yeah, better thought out, although I did like last week's as well. It's, it really depends what you're looking for. Okay, it, it just sounded like there was a lot more experience going into the Tawkach one. Okay, anyway, 
Amy Beach here. We're having her romance for violin and piano of 1893. Um, this is in her late romantic idiom. I guess the American romantic idiom. She was an American composer. Uh, this is a languid, melancholy um, piece. It evokes some kind of gentle regret, you know, when you're sort of thinking of something, and you're like, oh, if only that had gone differently. It kind of has that sort of feeling to it. And it has some pretty solid, satisfying cadences, as um, we are used to in Amy Beach's music. She, um, she likes that solid cadence. Everything is well with the world, in her world. A good ending to this very engaging program, a very sensitive performance. Bartolome has a nice, rich sound and beautiful sense of phrasing, as we mentioned already. Remarkable for her very young age. And again, uh, kudos to the recording producers, Alfredo Lacheras Jacobian and Johannes Endel. Good work. This is a great recording. Everybody should give this a listen. It's really fantastic. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, the synergy of the players is good. Uh, it's really lovely playing. And as I said, I really fell for her tone and uh, phrasing. And the program, although it's picked, you know, as called female, just, you know, uh, women composers. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to say something about that, but go ahead. Yeah, when but, you, finish you know, that could, out. if you just pick some category and put, you know, some type of composers or whatever it could be you know you could get kind of a hodgepodge of things but these pieces work really well together and the flow of the program uh, just goes really nicely and I thought it shows off the full sort of uh, you know palette of what they can do together with you know tones and different moods and things so there's enough variety but enough continuity that all these things go together so I really I'm going to listen to this again yeah, I would too. Uh, and and I just you know I enjoyed it a lot more than I do most, uh, you know, violin work or recordings. And it's amazing it's by such a, a young player. And for me, the most important thing with any you know when I, especially when I'm listening to solo uh, instruments is the tone. And for a young violinist or a violinist of any age, with that the warmth that she gets, and then as I mentioned that occasional edge that's sort of but it's still surrounded by that tone it's really endearing to me and makes me want to listen to it more and more and you know that that says a lot to me for uh listening to you know violin works but i found these were all interesting and a lot of variety so this is a really good recording and i think anyone will find uh you know something new surprising something comfortable it, do it doesn't really stretch you out but it does give you some you know, sort of new places to go uh, in a familiar territory. So, yeah, highly recommended. Yeah, it's got a, an attractive uh, cover as well. The um, cover art is all so it's white, and it says female. And then there's a picture of um, Lucy Bartolome by herself on a chair, uh, sort of insouciantly shaking her head so that her hair sort of um, sort of flies to the side, uh, looking very female, kind of um, almost like a statue. Very nice. I liked yeah, it. Attractive. I want to mention one thing, though, about this. Um, in the booklet note, uh, Bartolome, the um, the violinist, writes part of the um, the booklet note in the CD, and she writes. This is what she writes. This is um, now the booklet notes come in um, English and German only, and I imagine she she wrote them in French, and then we don't know if they're translated or who translated them. 
Or maybe she wrote them in English. I don't know. But she writes, I did not record the works on the CD because they were written by women, but because they received too little attention and deserve a much wider audience than they haven't had until now, which I agree with, by the way. My interest is not in the gender of the composers, but about the uniqueness, the musical merits, and beauty of the highly different works. That's what she says. And the album is called Female. So go figure. That's all That's all I want to say. I think, you know, she was, you know, if they, if they called the album Female, she had to be seeking out female composers. But of course, I do agree. Uh, these, these deserve a much wider audience. I just wanted to say that because I thought it was, she's 18. I don't know. She's maybe just needs to be a little more clearer in her her thinking about these things anyway the playing itself is fantastic all anyway, sounds good yes all sounds good no problem this is a great album this is my recommended album of the week okay in classical alright our third classical recording of the week is by a contemporary woman composer this is Joan Tower she's American and these are four works for soloists um Okay, in, so there are two concerti, and then there are two solo works. Um, the four works on this recording, this is on the Naxos label, I should mention. Um, and uh, the four works are Strike Zones, uh, Small, Still still Slash Rapids, and Ivory and Ebony. Okay, and uh, she's got some pretty uh, high high-class um, soloist here. The percussion soloist is Evelyn Glennie, the Scottish percussion soloist, who's very interesting. Uh, Glennie is, um, she's deaf. This is really interesting. Profoundly deaf, it says here. And plays by the way the instruments affect different parts of her body. So she's a percussionist, and she's really sort of um, going by the way the, the instruments affect parts of her body. She regularly plays barefoot to feel the music better, and she claims that uh, deafness is largely misunderstood by the public and explains her condition in an essay called Hearing Essay, if you want to know more about that. It's called Hearing Essay by Evelyn Glennie. And um, she'll explain what she's all, what, how, her approach to you in that. So she's, the, she's a top-ranked uh, world um, in the world percussionist. She's one of the, the top percussionists in the world, soloists. <coughs> Excuse me. And the other soloist is uh, on the is a piano player, Blair McMillan. He's an American piano player. Also, we have the Albany Symphony Orchestra, conducted by David Allen Miller. Okay, so Joan Tower, who is she? She's uh, American, born in 1938 in New Rochelle, New York. So she New just Yorker. turned 80. Yeah, she's from New New Rochelle. She just turned 83. So she's. Uh, a grande dame, they would say in yeah. France, but I don't know what we'd say in America. Uh, she spent a lot of her childhood in Bolivia, which she credits for the strong rhythmic profile of her work. All right. Anyway. Okay. Two of the... Uh, I wrote here, two of the four works are written for virtuosic soloists, where really all of them are. But um, let's go here. The, uh, the way the program unfolds is that you hear an orchestral, uh, the soloist with an orchestra, and then a solo work, and then you hear the next soloist with an orchestra, and then another solo work. Glennie comes first. Uh, Strike Zones is the name of the first piece. Um, it's for percussion and orchestra. It was recorded in 2014, 13 years after the premiere, and Glennie was the uh, soloist at the premiere as well, so she's lived with this work for about uh, 13 years since recording this still this was recorded in 2014 just came out this year they've been sitting on this for quite a while 
Okay. Um, when I first saw this um, piece, Strike Zones, I was thinking, oh, it's a piece about baseball. She's American, right? But no, it's not. Okay, it has nothing to do with that. Um, the title comes from the fact that most percussion instruments are struck, so that's the strike part. And the zone part of the title refers to the spatial arrangement of the percussion instruments. So they're arranged in different zones of the stage according to their fragility and power. So the vibraphone would be on the left and the uh, drums would be on the right and that sort of thing. Um, I didn't think that really registered that way in the uh, the headphones. I, it didn't, I don't know how the percussion instruments were set up. They weren't in a line, I don't think, because it didn't sound like that through the headphones. But I guess if you were watching the, the work live, you'd kind of get a better idea of how the uh, the work is um, organized just by looking at the... Um, the arrangement of the uh, the um, instruments, and I'm just I'm hesitating because I'm thinking this sort of thing. This is a, it's a sort of thing that American composers do, and to be honest, it kind of drives me crazy. Um, where they put a visual component into the music, like you have to be if you're seeing it, you'll understand it better. Um, and I just kind of I just feel like I, I like the whole idea of um, pure music, where all that matters is the sound that you're hearing. But here, I think there's a there's a there's a visual component as well. And it's it's something that Americans like to do, American composers especially. I feel. All right, um, the orchestration of the supporting ensemble changes according to the power of the percussion instrument being played. This piece is about 20 minutes long. It features several impressive solo sections um, with Glennie. I, I guess she's got a run around and play in the different percussion zones. Again, it's it's more of a visual thing, too. You kind of get a sense of energy seeing her moving from zone to zone on the stage. Um, yeah, okay. They, they're, they're very quiet instruments in both channels, so it didn't seem like they were lined up um, weak to strong or anything like that. Um, it's the composition itself that concerns us here, though. That's really what we're talking about. The recording of the orchestra doesn't have much depth. Uh, it kind of sounds like a backdrop to the percussion. The performance itself is really good. Uh, everybody plays really well. And the percussion are really well recorded. I just feel like the um, the, the orchestral sound is kind of two-dimensional in the back. It just kind of sounds like it's like a cloth that's that's kind of preventing the uh, percussion from falling into the into the back. Um, it's an easy... It's a work that's easy on the ear. It's enjoyable. Um... If you like instrumental timbre, in other words, if you like you know, French music, you might actually like this because uh, the percussion there there's a large variety of sound in the percussion instruments. Um, I might have to hear this a few more times to really, you know, pick up on what's happening. But um, I, I liked this enough. Okay, the next piece this this was pretty interesting to me. Um, this is only six minutes long. It's called Small. This was recorded in 2016 with Evelyn Glennie, which is the year of the composition, so they recorded it right away. Uh, Tower is concerned with smaller instruments here, and she wanted to write a piece where heavy percussion instruments like the marimba wouldn't have to be lugged around from performance to performance. And those of us like me, and Russ too, who have played in rock bands or even jazz bands, we all remember having to carry the drums for the drummer because all we had to, to take was our... I, yeah, I played the bass that? in bands. So I like the bass and the amp, and that was all you had to do. And then you had to help the drummer, you know, get his kit together. You remember that? Yeah. They didn't have any <laughs> small stuff. 
All right. So she's trying to she's trying to solve that problem just in this particular piece. Um, it's written for percussion, percussion instruments that can be fit into a tiny carrying case and be able to fit on a small table. So you can actually just walk into the room, set up your percussion instruments, play this piece, and leave. Um, kind of interesting idea. Uh, also, I wrote here that um, this really identifies the composer as American because she's being practical. I think of like Charles Sanders Pierce, William James, John Dewey, their pragmatism. This is a very pragmatic <laughs> approach to music. It's like, oh boy, so American, right? All right. Okay, this record this piece is recorded up very close, uh, sort of like you would record a harpsichord. Harpsichords often sound a lot louder than they actually do if you hear them live on a recording. They sound louder on a recording. That's the case here. Um, you feel like the the microphone was right up against these instruments. Um, there are some real thwacks on these instruments, and they explode into the ear. I was listening to this on headphones, but everything registers in full dimensionality. You get this nice. Um, you know, full dimensional sound. Um, it's got depth as well as like taking up um, horizontal and vertical space. Um, this is a very still piece. It doesn't really move much. Um, and it's almost a sampling of the individual instruments. You can just imagine somebody like uh, putting their, um, you know, some salesman putting their wares on a table and saying, this is, you know, and this is, and, you know, you're just hearing all these different instruments. I kind of got that from it. Um, uh, it's an excellent recording though, but again, I think if you were to hear this work live, it would be a lot quieter than it sounds on this recording, unless somebody plays it in your house, I guess. Anyway. All right. So this and Strike Zones are both highly visual pieces, surely even more enjoyable in live performance, as I said. All right. Next, we move into Still slash Rapids. This is two movements. The first movement is called Still and it was completed in 2013. The second movement, Rapids, was written in 1996 for the pianist Ursula Oppens. Now, it was written as a one-movement piece originally. The The reason why we have such a gap between the two dates is um, that Rapids was... Um, um, uh, let me see what I said here. Uh, all right, let me just go through my notes here. We'll just go through this. Okay, still was was uh, dedicated to the present pianist Blair McMillan, and um, he's the performer here. This recording was made in 2014, and it features the dedicatee Blair McMillan, the dedicatee for still. T Tower says that, um, as the title suggests, still is like sitting in a rowboat on a quiet day on a lake where the water is completely still. While Rapids is like being in a canoe going down a challenging river of speed and rapid waters and trying to stay afloat. Now, it's important, though, to note that this is not program music. She's not actually giving you the feeling of going down the rapids on a float like you're listening to a, like a, a sound video game. Uh, we're, actually, we're not listening to a sound picture of these images. Um, she's just trying to aid your comprehension of uh, what you're hearing. Still starts with a pulsing string pattern supporting a meditative piano part uh, the energy level just stays this way all the way through for the brief five minute duration until a loud chord on the piano leads into the canoe shooting the rapids ride of rapids the beginning actually sounds pretty ominous the cascading piano scales actually lead to moments of relative rest this isn't as wild as the description led me to believe you know because I was thinking there was just going to be some wild Christopher Rouse sort of um, 
thing. But uh, there's a lot. If you listen to Christopher Rouse's piece, Phaeton, um, you you get an idea of what I was thinking. But it's not like that. There's a lot of tense harmonic buildup that doesn't resolve until later in the movement. So this, it's a very tense movement. Um, ominous is a good word for this movement. It's more ominous than it is like uh, exciting or, you know, fast moving. Uh, some of the wind and string figuration reminded me of Bruckner. Okay. <laughs> I guess the triplets and things like that. It's a pretty impressive performance by the pianist. And finally, we have the um, piece Ivory and Ebony. It's for piano. Guess what this is about? It has nothing to do with uh, the Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder <laughs> duet. Very different than that. Uh, this is a solo piano work, and it concludes the album. Um, it was commissioned as a test piece by the San Antonio International Piano Competition in 2009. Uh, this per performance that we're hearing here was recorded by Blair McMillan in 2017, so still four years ago. Uh, the title refers to the piano's black and white keys, which the composer says offer consonant pitch collections when separate, but more dissonance when together. So if you, in other words, if you play all the white keys, they sound good. And if you play only the black keys, they sound good. But when you put them together, there's a lot of dissonance in them. And uh, I wonder if that uh, is, is supposed to play out in the, into the modern world as well. I don't think she was thinking that when she wrote the piece, but uh, there's a bit of philosophy in here, I think. Um Okay, so Ivern and Ebony starts tranquilly with white key clusters. Okay, you can kind of hear that. They sound sort of nice. They, then it leads to some of the dissonance we'll hear throughout, okay? There's a lot of, like, black and white keys together here. It's pretty easy to tell when the white and black keys are being played together cause, and when separately because they really do kind of start clashing uh, when they're together. She's sort of organized the music to be this way. Uh, it's an interesting concept. It works well in practice. The piano has some uh, cuticle shredding glissandos to play at the end. Uh, I would not like to play these. <laughs> um, you really needed to want to win this competition to play those glissandos. Boy. The piece ends in dissonance. Ebony and Ivory not combining in perfect harmony like they do in the Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney song. So, I don't know if, if she's making a political statement here. It's not a very positive one. All right, the piece achieves higher energy than Rapids, and it's good a good closer for the album. Tower goes for high energy in a lot of her work, and certainly, along with Rapids, this is one of those works. And one pundit in the booklet called her, everybody knows the Tower of Power, right? The... Uh, the, the jazz, the funk ensemble. Uh, one, one guy in this book calls her the power of tower. Oh, anyway, <laughs> I didn't say that. Somebody else did. <laughs> then there you go. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a big uh, percussion uh, ensemble or uh, soul percussion listening thing. So it was I hard know. You like the, the Christopher Rouse percussion works, I think. Yeah. They're pretty exciting, though. Yeah, so it was hard for me to um, <clears throat> appreciate the strike zones and small so much. I did like still uh, piece. I <laughs> I like the kind of uh, alternating minimalist kind of piano and then string uh, chords in here, and then uh, this kind of these kind of pentatonic piano things and running scales. It's a it's kind of a pretty piece, and uh, Rapids was interesting too. Uh, what I, I found interesting here is the the d sense of danger from the piano running figures and then the orchestral stabs in there too and then the rhythmic variation in the 
piano part was kind of interesting. It sounded really difficult to play this piece, actually. And yeah. then uh, there's like a, like you say, moments of stillness where you're wondering what's coming next, this sort of descending orchestral lines. And then, um, I don't know, maybe it's a viola there and a flute interlude in there and then uh some more kind of dangerous things with muted brass in there and so that was kind of uh as you say not uh program music but you, know, you can get the idea uh you're sort of surfing or floating along uh some type of uh, course that you don't know what's coming up next and so it's illustrative if not uh programmatic uh, the idea of Rapids. Ivory and Ebony, I don't know. Uh, it, it does explore a lot of rhythmic figure things, but there were so many different changes along mm -hmm. the way. It was hard for me to keep up with, uh, you know, sort of an overall kind of theme. So, yeah, um, I would say, you know, if you like uh, percussion, if we're a percussionist, this one might be very interesting uh, for me. Uh, you know, so, so. Uh, help my interest. I like I said. I like Still and Rapids best among the selections here. Yeah, and that's it for uh, classical music this week. Um, there are other recordings out there of music, fully of music by women composers. Um, we did one on Caroline Shaw like a few weeks ago, and there are at least two others that I wanted to talk about eventually. I'm wondering if I should save them or do them right away about, um, you know, sort of these omnibus recordings, like, you know, by different composers, all women. Um, well, I guess we'll get to them eventually on Girls, Girls, Girls. Girls, Girls, Girls. <laughs> yeah. Coming soon on a podcast near you. Well, right. coming on to jazz this week, uh, What? Are, well, I have one more female. Uh, huh. Actually, I have a lady. I have a lady. Uh, three albums and five pianists. Not divide that up, as you ah, will among yeah, these recordings. That's right. hmm. uh, but um, the first, a grand lady of jazz from Brazil, Eliane Elias, uh, who probably needs no introduction. She's uh, been a prominent figure since the 1980s. Uh, I first came to know her because she was uh, one time the wife of uh, trumpet great Randy Brecker. Yeah. And uh, they recorded... Actually, the album they made together was not one of their uh, better uh, products together. And I don't know what happened with their marriage, uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. For the music, uh, she's established herself uh, both as a fabulous pianist, uh, vocalist too, and performed a lot of things. But here she's back to her uh, original love of uh, piano. Yeah, I know uh, her primarily as a vocalist, I should say. Yeah, kind yeah of... she's done a lot of different things. Um, but here she's back uh, just to piano on this recording. Uh, just came out well, last week. Uh, so it's hot off the presses. Mirror, mirror on the Candid label. And uh, this recording is uh, notable because, uh, well, it features her with two other pianists, uh, one of whom is the uh, recently departed uh, Chick Corea. Yeah. And so this will be one of his final recordings. Uh, it's nice well, to have. Nice to hear him, actually. Yeah. Oh, nice. uh, now that we've uh, lost him, so nice to know that uh, there was something uh, still 
that we haven't heard that he had recorded. So these recordings took place uh, in two sessions, uh, one with Chikria and the other with uh, uh, Cuban great uh, pianist Chucho Valdez. And uh, so she's uh, performing with these uh, other two pianists. And that's all we have here on this recording is uh, just piano. Uh, so the recordings took place uh, in New York City at uh, New York uh, City's Yamaha's Artist Services in Manhattan with Korea and then Brooklyn's uh, Bunker Studios with Valdez. And so we've got four tracks with Chikoria and uh, Chucho on uh, three. Uh, and so it's produced by uh, Elias herself with her uh, co-producers Mark Johnson, Steve Rodby, and mixed and mastered by uh, Rich Breen. And it's a very nice sounding recording overall. And uh, on the tracks here, they sort of alternate uh, between the guests on the uh, Elias and Chikoria tracks they're both playing uh, Yamaha CFX pianos and on the whole recording you'll hear uh, Iliani Ilias on the left channel and uh, the uh, other guest in this case uh, Chikoria on the right or Chucho Valdez and on the Valdez recordings uh, they're both playing Steinway and Sons Model D pianos and uh, still she's on the left and Chucho Valdez is on the right. Yeah, and in case you get lost, um, Chick Corea is on all the odd-numbered tracks, and uh, Chucho Valdez is on the even-numbered right. ones. And so the recording starts out, uh, first track, uh, Chick Corea original tune uh, that he's recorded. Probably, uh, I have a few different versions of this one. I think uh, Armando's Rumba. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is you know, one of his original compositions that's well-known. And uh, you'll notice right away here, that uh, the the theme of the album matches well. That they really uh, match their styles well. There's no competition going on here. This is uh, friendly collaborative playing, and so you, you could think when you have you know just two pianos going together, uh, there's a lot of things that could overlap or get uh, murky. But that doesn't happen on this recording, uh, and so their styles match well on this Korea tune. And even though they're separated by channels. You can also discern uh, Chick Corea's kind of uh, unique articulation style. And uh, there's no overplaying uh, or competition here. It's all very musical and uh, a very nice uh, start uh, to this uh, record. Uh, yeah, you can time. also discern Chick Corea's wit. He's got a he's kind of a witty pianist. Like oh, he'll respond yeah, yeah. in this really surprising way to something that like Eliana. Elias yeah. will play. So I really, really noticed that, especially play, in this piece. Yeah, which only uh, picks up as the recording goes on. Uh, right. So next, we switch over to Chucho Valdez as a partner on track two, "Esta Tarde Vi Llover," uh, tuned by Armando uh, Manzanero. Uh, this really nice, relaxed tempo here, and both pianists give each other a lot of space. Uh, Iliani takes the lead first, and Chucho lays back. Uh, but he does come in with a perky solo. And they trade back and forth, passing the melody on to each other. Uh, and then uh, Iliane has some really kind of lovely chiming ideas. And then Chicho has uh, some really joyful rolling in his solo. And I have to say that um, 
my impression, uh, listening to a lot of other Chucho Valdez recordings to this point, is he's always exuberant and sometimes, you know, just bursting uh, out. So I was wondering, you know, will that work? Could you play piano with Chucho Valdez? But he's very laid back and uh, I don't, how can I say? Yeah. Uh, well, this he, really surprised me. Yeah, he gives Ileone a lot of space to work things before he comes in. Uh, and so... That was very interesting to me because yeah, he sort of responds. He doesn't really take the lead yeah, much, yeah. Because most, which is unusual for him. When I've listened to his solo recordings or his own things, you know, he's always very aggressive. But here, he he really, you know, sort of takes at least a uh, responding role or whatnot, uh, and so it works out really well. Uh, number three, uh, the old Kenny Durham tune, "Blue Bossa," uh, and this is back with Chick Corea. Chick starts out the melody. And uh, Ileana is kind of handling the bass and some nice uh, added backing here. And she takes over the melody in spots. And uh, if you listen on this one, listen to Chick's uh, accompaniment lines. They're really creative. He yeah. can just compose these fabulous sort of counterpoint things that go on. Um, and then uh, they change the mood with a real chimey kind of motif in the middle I of the tune. Yeah, I pulled that out yeah. too, the chimey. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that really caught me. And that's Chick doing that as well. Yeah. It's, you know, he yeah. comes up with that idea. And then they get some really incredibly synced counterpoint lines uh, going on together, and they build it up rhythmically. But then, uh, you know, instead of going out with sort of a, a rush on this, they bring it back uh, to a quiet kind of end with a bit of mystery. So, really nice treatment of uh, this. Uh, you know, this tune, it is such a great tune, uh, and they do a lot mm. of interesting things with it. Yeah. Um, back to uh, Chucho on the next track, uh, Corazon Partillo uh, by Alejandro Sanz. Eliane um, ah. carries the melody at first, and Chucho gives some gracious support here. And then uh, Chucho takes his own turn with some funkiness, and he had some just really amazing technical lines and Cuban-style rhythms uh, into this one. Uh, they have some more joyful trading throughout the track, and then they bring it back down and uh, back to the melody in the middle. Uh, then they play on uh, more and more trading improvised lines. About eight minutes, there's a more percussive kind of uh, Cuban rhythm injected, and they stretch this one out with more variations uh, up to 11 and a half minutes. Right, it's uh, a They never long run track. out of ideas, so uh, they just go yeah. on and on on this one, uh, having fun. Uh, number five is the title track, back with Chick Corea, Mirror, Mirror. And uh, this is a, a kind of more pensive tune of uh, Korea's. It's got some interesting harmonies and it's played in a really... Uh, rubato style uh, it picks up into a waltzing kind of swing after a few minutes of this more free kind of rhythm and there's lots of interesting lines uh, for both of them with a really nice ending uh, next track back to Chucho uh, Sabor a Mi and this is a tune by Alvaro Carrillo it's a very pretty uh, tune that starts with a kind of satie styled intro it's kind of something like you might yeah. imagine uh, bill evans would uh do uh however out of that uh kind of impressionist start a nice groove develops and uh Ileani has a really nice energetic solo through here uh 
off to Chucho, who rips out some amazing lines in his solo. And they have a nice new groove before the ending, too. So this one's really bursting with different ideas uh, and uh, arrangements here. Uh, and then uh, the final tune here is uh, our soul jazz standard, the There Will Never Be Another You, uh, which was by Harry Warren and Mac Gordon. And uh, this gets off to a swinging stroll. Uh, with Chick on the melody first, and then he passes it off to Eliane, and she plays uh, great uh, on her theme here as well. And it's nice to have this one jazz standard and shows uh, a huge sense of swing. You can just imagine all the rhythm parts and you don't need any uh, bass or drums here because they've got such a great swing concept. So this is a fun recording uh, with great synergy and respect between the players. They're not competing or showing off. Uh, they're just giving lots of space for the musical uh, creativity of each other and their partnerships. And uh, so it all works really well. It's a joy to listen to. They're just having fun. And it's really nice to have one more recording of Chick Corea uh, here in this relaxed setting, uh, showing his brilliant uh, creativity. And Ileana shows, you know, her a full sense of what she can do on the keyboard too, especially with these massive uh, jazz giants as partners. So um, there's a lot of things that could get murky or not be executed well with just two pianos, but this album works really well and it's a lot of fun to listen to. So uh, any jazz piano fans, I highly recommend this one. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, the last track is There Will Never Be Another You. Uh, yeah. The last uh, chick recording that we're hearing so far, there there will certainly be a never be another hymn. So no. uh, it's a lovely uh, send off there. It's a, it's a it's a joyous piece, gorgeous ending. I want to also mention in Mirror Mirror. I felt like um, I liked this a lot because um, uh, Eliana Elias starts this piece and she sounds she starts like playing sort of like chick she's kind of you can kind yeah. of hear that she's sort of trying to imitate him but he doesn't play like him when it comes to his yeah. part he's sort of he he can't he's always got to be sort of teasing in a way he kind of gets for some kind of angular sort of a melody and response i thought it was really fantastic just that that, that active yeah. mind that he always had yeah, was when, he, when he played the piano um the thing i wrote about this that overall that really uh, struck me is that you can't really tell uh, Chick or uh, Chucho Valdez apart. Um, they both seem to adapt to Ileana Elias's style, or they completely mind meld with her. I don't know because it just sounds so like such a, you know, it's it sounds so together, like a yeah, like a four armed person sort of playing. It's it's really uh, extraordinary. Yeah, um, I mean the their individualness comes out in eventually in all of the solos but when they're just playing together it's almost could be one individual so that synergy uh which is really what yeah. you need to pull something off like this is definitely there and uh so it's a lovely project and uh it yeah. must have been really hard for her to uh get this completed and out there after chick passed away too yeah and if you if you see uh an interview uh, with her, uh, her exuberance. And she seems to be like a really huge, warm personality uh, person. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, especially with, you know, any kind of musician or jazz musicians, when they have interviews with them, you sort of pick up on their quirkiness and things yeah. like that. But you don't get any sense of that from uh, Ileana. She seems just to be like a huge hearted 
uh, person who just loves music and uh, you know exudes happiness and exuberance. Uh, uh, so I, I know I think probably her personality was a large part of being able to you know pull off this kind of meld with other piano greats uh, right. together. Because you know usually when you get a kind of project that you know you get players on the same instruments together it sort of ends up you know with some kind of tension or outdoing kind of things but that doesn't come across here at all the it just adds to like the musical creativity and uh, you get a really nice uh, uh, performance out of uh, these collaborations yeah um i get the her, that exuberance i mean it in her personality, I mean, it comes into her playing, and it's also yeah. what draws me to it too. I mean, someone who's going to be like that—they're just expressing this pure joy through their playing. It's just always going to be a joy to listen yeah. to them. I really like her in general. So, okay. as I mentioned uh, before, I had, as we took a, a month off in the summer, and a lot of the things that uh, I was waiting to come out all came out at once. So, <laughs> I've been sort of looking at how am I going to put these all together, and so. Well, I wanted to get that uh, Iliane uh, recording in there to match the feminine music. And uh, the rest of the tie-in here is uh, the two other recordings are keyboard recordings as well with uh, two really interesting but maybe uh, not well-known enough uh, keyboard players. So I'm happy to include these here. And uh, I hope you'll give them a listen. Uh, the next one is by... Uh, pianist uh, Steve Milliam and uh, this recording is called What I Mean to Say it's on the Origin label and uh, features uh, Steve Milliam on piano uh, another Steve Cardenas on guitar uh, John Sims on bass and Ron Vincent on drums and, uh, and that Steve, guitarist is a name you're going to want to remember I think yeah. he's really good on this recording so uh, Steve Milliam he recorded uh, three CDs uh, back in the uh, mid to late 90s on uh, Palmetto Records. Uh, there was, uh, using his name uh, as a key, why not? Uh, those a million to one, uh, thanks a million. Uh, the other one didn't have those, uh, truth is. And uh, they uh, featured some of uh, other, uh, in addition to Vincent and Cardenas, but also uh, Randy Brecker, mentioned uh -huh. before, uh, so had you known him like from those? I, I had era? heard him once before. I think on the one that had uh, Randy Brecker on it, and also Chris Potter, too, and uh, that were involved in these projects. So he had, you know, had been a name that was out there. And um, in terms of the relationship with the players on here, um, he he is a Chicago-based uh, player, a million. But he met uh, Cardenas and uh, Vincent when they all lived in Kansas City back in the 1970s. And uh, they had uh, made some recordings together as a group in the 80s under uh, the name of Four Friends. Uh, but then uh, Million and Vincent moved to New York in 1981, and that band uh, stopped being a performing unit. And... Uh, so they've been in various places, uh, but then uh, they gathered together again in New York uh, as a group uh, in 2019 uh, to get back on this project here. And uh, so we get a, a recording here that the overall kind of feel of it is very subtle and uh, kind of a relaxed vibe 
for a jazz recording. But I think if you give it a couple listens and go deeper, you'll find a lot to enjoy here. So all the compositions are originals by uh, Steve Million. And it starts out with one called uh, Open the Book. And this has a gentle piano intro. The bass comes in adding a pulse, and then uh, the guitar comes in and shares the melody with the piano uh, with some interesting harmonies. And uh, Million starts out with his solo, and you'll get a sense that he's a player who focuses on touch. He's not a show-off player uh, with a lot of uh, loud dynamics or things. Uh, it's all about the touch and uh, different uh, harmonies with him. And... Uh, the rhythmic figures are varied a lot in his runs that leave a lot of space. It shows he's a really ma mature kind of soloist. And when you get uh, Cardenas' uh, solo here, he's a really good match for Million style. The mood of his guitar and the tone really fits this overall concept. You know, So the guitar and piano are a really good match throughout here, and it's set up in this first track. Uh, the second track is called Old Earl. And... This kind of interesting tune gets some nice, rhythm, nice rhythmic accents and interplay right from the melody between the guitar and piano. They work really well together. But then after that sort of uh, melody intro, there's an unexpected change. It comes to like this solo Latin groove section. Uh, and then it comes into that before Million takes his solo. Um, then Vincent kind of keeps the time nicely through that all with uh, the changes in the different rhythm feels on the drums. And the Latin feel returns for Cardenas solo. And then again, uh, you get some more Latin piano uh, with uh, Vincent getting some uh, drumming spots behind that. And so it's a really interesting tune as far as sections and changing of time goes. Um, I'm not sure what the uh, genesis of that is, Old Earl, but uh, kind of interesting tune. Three is the title track, What I Meant to Say. This is a slow bossa nova type ballad. A really nice light touch by Million. And uh, the guitar comes in to double the melody uh, before taking over and continuing with a kind of relaxed and fluid solo. And uh, Million's piano has a lot of rhythmic variations and gentle lines. And Sims get a short, gets a short but deep uh, bass solo on this one too. Track four is called The Company. Uh, this one has uh, alternating alternating rhythm patterns on uh, mm. piano that are joined by the guitar that set up some tension in the intro. The melody goes through a lot of rhythmic changes and uh, over some very interesting bass lines here. So this is a really interesting composition. There's a huge pause, uh, and then we get the piano figure again before a really digging in bass solo. And then uh, Million solo on this one is a really expansive kind of modal type solo that builds up intensity and a lot of interesting harmonic lines. And Cardenas gets a bit more uh, edge to the tone in his solo here uh, compared to his normally really uh, kind of uh, fluid, watery kind of sound. Uh, track five is mm. called Situations. This is a solo piano intro that sets up a swing tune that has some nice harmonies to it. And a million is off to soloing uh, over the kind of really throbbing, walking bass line that's cool here. And Vincent has some nice drum fills to encourage him. And uh, Cardenas has a nice slow burn in his solo on this one. And then bass and drums uh, get some time to trade off on this one. 
the next track, My Explanation, is a really kind of hypnotic line uh, tune. Has some interesting accents that build the melody on this one. It seems to be built around a nine-beat cycle. Uh, so it's the rhythm is really interesting here. It, it is an interesting kind of structure uh, to the uh beat here and the harmonies and feel constantly change uh, throughout uh, millions and cardenas solo so they're sometimes mellow or um, uh, modal uh, and then sometimes bluesy and uh, there's a kind of cool short sparse bass solo on this one too uh, seven is uh, waltz for mr abercrombie i guess that's john abercrombie it's a medium waltz melody uh, that's played in unison on the piano and bass uh, with some really nice light drum brushing on this one. And then the guitar takes over for the bass line, uh, jumping in with that unison melody. Uh, Sim solos first on the bass, uh, building a nice arc to his solo. And uh, Cardina has, has another uh, flowing solo here. Some really cool uh, triplet figures and some uh, bluesy notes. And then uh, Million solos nicely as well. Uh, number eight is a tune called Missing Page. It's another relaxed ballad, some nice accents in the bass that uh, go together with the uh, left-hand piano accompaniment. And uh, Sims has another really tasty solo here. And uh, Million Solo has uh, kind of a burst of ecstasy in it uh, that mm. breaks out of his normal relaxed kind of mood. Uh, number nine is Azusa Dreams. This is kind of a melancholy piano opening to this tune that's joined by guitar and then there's another kind of uh, interesting bass and left-hand piano answer line to the melody. A million has a dancing solo with a lot of trills and triplets that turn into 16th note runs and syncopated figures uh, before he gets back to the opening idea so he seems very inspired on this one and uh, it wraps up with a blues uh, called the blue lizard and this is a blues waltz with some cool chords. And uh, Cardenas takes a really bluesy solo with some percussive notes, uh, kind of harder attack than we hear on the rest of the album at his climax here. Million starts out mellow and builds up into some rolling figures and harder attacks too. And you can hear some kind of uh, Keith Jarrett-like vocalizing in the background on this tune, <laughs> although it's yeah, not quite as loud as uh, Keith Jarrett would do. Uh, and then the guitar and piano trade off phrases with the drums before they uh, go back to the head. Uh, so I really enjoyed this. It's a fine recording with an overall mellow mood, but uh, Million's original compositions are interesting and they have a lot of little surprises and unexpected diversions uh, with the uh, parts and sections and the voices are arranged well in the tunes so he's not a show-off player but he has a refined touch his solos are engaging and they always go someplace musical and then on guitar Cardenas is a really good match to him in terms of uh, mood and tone with his real fluid guitar and then Sims in, on bass and Vincent on drums uh, lock together to complete the ensemble so I enjoyed the uh, uh, Vincent's range of subtle brushwork also uh, here, and he also gets some really cracking fills uh, on the intense moments. So, yeah, a nice jazz group, uh, a little bit subtle, but if you uh, go deeper, uh, you'll see good compositions and um, some uh, interesting playing here. 
Yeah, you're using the word uh, refined to describe this. And I use similar words. I said urbane and tasteful. Okay, there there is a kind of civilized quality to the playing on this album. And I really enjoyed that, especially since uh, civilization seems to be falling apart these days. I tend to go more and more for recordings like this, you know, that kind of remind me that people can be, you know, yeah. you know really civilized. Um, I really enjoyed on this record the the guitar playing, the piano playing too, because I love this kind of this kind of playing where the uh, the weight of the tone is really important. It kind of sounds like French yeah. classical music in a way, except although he's using jazz chords here, he's not using those French, uh, you know, classical sort of, um, you know. Yeah, but his touch, the touch is always yeah. important to him. You can mm-hmm. tell so. He, he's right. going to play less with just the right attack uh, rather than to overdo it. And so I right. sense that's his whole approach. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love the guitar. I want to give a shout out to the guitar player on this because it his solos are really good, but he matches the, the pianist tone a lot. And um, it almost felt like... Um, sort of if you, if you watch old films where like you'll, you'll, they'll put like two sort of images they'll pull they'll have this image and then like they'll be like the, the ghost of the person will come out of the main person it kind of felt like that when the guitar sort of took over from the piano because yeah. they really did sound like they belong together the tones are so beautifully matched um this is a really enjoyable album very relaxing good end of the day record actually i liked it a lot yeah 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 so that's what yeah, i so would have to say steve million um yeah if you haven't heard of him uh definitely check it out uh, his subtle but deep and uh, an album of all original compositions uh, that are really worth checking out. Hmm. And then, uh, as a nice sort of contrast to that, uh, another pianist you may not you may have heard but not know you've heard of because he has a very impressive resume in the music world, and that's uh, Todd Cochran. And uh, this is on Sunnyside Records with his new release, Then and Again and Here and Now. And uh, this is a trio featuring uh, a couple of jazz journeymen, uh, great players, uh, bassist John Leftwich and drummer Michael Carvin. Uh, Fabulous players here to round out his trio. And uh, Cochran has a really uh, interesting musical background. He's... uh, born and raised in San Francisco, and he was something of a musical prodigy. Uh, he was giving classical recitals by the age of 10, and uh, his uh, earliest influences on piano were Glenn Gould and uh, Vladimir Ashkenazi. <laughs> uh, so uh, you may not have guessed that from uh, this Right, I, not in a million years. Um, but so he was formally trained and he studied uh, in three music schools in classical and jazz studies at UCLA, uh, University of San Jose, and then uh, later uh, Trinity College of Music in London. Um, and he came up in the jazz world in the 1970s, playing with uh, jazz greats Harold Land and Bobby Hutcherson. And uh, later on, he got into sort of fusion and progressive uh, rock collaborations, and he played under this uh, kind of pseudonym called uh, Bayete. Uh, and he played on some notable recordings of uh, Peter Gabriel's second album. Uh, he did collaboration works with Santana and Steve Winwood, and uh, he's also played uh, with jazz greats uh, Stanley Clark, Freddie Hubbard, Arthur Blythe, and even on uh, Aretha Franklin recordings. And so he's a guy who's, you know, he has a classical background, 
into some traditional jazz uh, studied uh, classical music here and there and also involved in uh, these different uh, fusion and rock worlds and then now he's here with a uh, jazz recording of uh, jazz standard music and uh, so how's that going to work out uh, well, it works out really well. I thought um, so too. And he, uh, I guess you could say he reinvents or reimagines standards, but in a recognizable way, but brings something uh, worthwhile uh, to all of these uh, because of his uh, musical background and experience. And so this is a really interesting and uh, uh, I found satisfying album. Uh, so, uh, Going through the tunes here, a uh, great jazz standard, uh, softly as in a morning sunrise. I always liked uh, this tune as done by uh, John Hicks, uh, one of my favorite underrated piano players. But this is a tune by uh, Romberg and Hammerstein. And this it, this starts out as a great arrangement um, because um, he swings the melody really well, uh, but there's these alternating sections that he has a triplet uh, bass line um, that's uh, uh, in in there that goes against the melody uh, feel in the solo and uh, so I've never heard that played like this before and his solo swings nicely uh, here and uh, there's a bass solo here that uh, is a preview of some of the great bass work we'll hear on the album yeah and he has some I'm nice, gonna mention a lot about that really neat two-hand figures here and uh, yeah, the bass left, which is bass, is this huge, deep tone and melodically satisfying. Uh, and so uh, the melody is straightforward if you know this tune, but the the, the accompaniment is uh, the sort of creative part of this one. Uh, two, uh, Foggy well, Day. Before, okay, before go you go on, though, I want to say about that, uh, Softly as in a Morning Sunrise, I love these old, these titles of these old jazz songs. There's, yeah, there's yeah. a poeticness to them willow weep for me these sort of things but the thing that's always bothered me about this one is like the morning sunrise what other kind of sunrise is there it's it's only a morning sunrise i guess yeah i don't know anyway go go think about that yeah, one anyway think next about tune, that please. yeah i guess uh, <laughs> just getting the titles uh Right. It's right. the poetry. We're in there for the poetry. Uh, two, a Foggy Day, or I think it should be A Foggy Day. I think it's a Gershwin composition. Uh, this one gets a solo piano intro and a gentle treatment. Uh, the bass joins in with some light drumming here. Cochrane shows a really uh, delicate touch with interesting intervals. And then the tempo changes up to a fast swing. And he gets some chiming chords in there, and he's off on a real charging solo. Uh, you know, some really tight drumming from Carvin here as he pushes them along. Uh, and there's another really melodic bass solo from uh, Leftwich on the bass here. The tempo changes again into an even beat, funky groove, and then Cochran just jams out on it with some new harmonies. So this is a really cool, uh, nice arrangement. It just goes to unexpected uh, directions. I guess the fog clears and we're going to have a funky uh, hot day here. So I really liked uh, the turns in this tune. I wasn't expecting that at all. Uh, three, we've got, uh, of course, the maybe the most uh, used tune in all of the jazz world uh, I've Got Rhythm I Got Rhythm by Gershwin mm -hmm. and uh, here we get an original new opening uh, with some 
kind of modulations, uh, you'll wonder what's happening before the familiar melody sets in. Uh, and then they do change up the rhythm uh, over the sections of the song with some interesting solo breaks before Cochran uh, charges into an extended solo. Uh, Leftwich here adds a fun bowed bass solo, which is really cool. And Carvin takes a drum solo before they return with the original opening thing theme. But interestingly, they don't repeat the melody at the end, which I thought was cool because mm-hmm. uh, everyone knows this melody. Why play it again? And they don't do it. Uh, so I like that kind of abbreviated form approach. Uh, and then uh, the next tune is uh, something that uh, kind of also figures into the uniqueness of the programming on here. Uh, he has a sort of uh, interlude uh, approach to some of these tunes. And so this one is called uh, Verselet, I guess, which is like a little verse uh, for the Duke. So it's less than a minute and a half long. Uh, the next track is the Duke, uh, Dave Brubeck tune, uh, made famous probably by uh, Miles Davis as well. But uh, on this short kind of prelude here he gives an interesting little intro uh to the duke he just hints at the opening notes but then uh there's kind of this cool almost raga like bass tones that come in and then he has some really cool uh overtones on the bass and then it just sort of disappears so it's just sort of a setup piece but i thought it was kind of cool and then it comes into uh the Dave Brubeck tune, The Duke. And so the piano intro uh, comes in and uh, then you get the familiar melody, this and you've probably heard that uh, tune by Brubeck and Miles Davis. Uh, And they give a nice uh, reimagining of the tune uh, with little pauses in there. And then um, there's a really nice bass solo here too and uh left which gives you a little bit of that melody candy at the start of his bass solo too mm-hmm. and um yeah so pretty much straight uh playing of this is a nice little melody um track six uh the old uh, ellington classic don't get around much anymore and uh this is uh kind of an imaginative intro uh before the ellington theme and uh you get some new creative harmonization and rhythms here. And uh, this is all uh, solo piano. So Cochran yeah. does this uh, on his own. He, I, I think he strikes that right balance of uh, giving respect to the original composition, but uh, adding just some new harmonies and ideas to it uh, to see you know, where he can take it uh, today. And uh, he hits that balance just uh, nicely there. Um, then... Uh, I like these, uh, there's two of these here that feature the bass. Uh, he calls them uh, interstitials, which are sort of like, I guess, yeah. uh, filling in the blank uh, compositions here. Uh, and this one is called uh, Here to Four, another uh, about a minute and a half uh, thing here. And this is uh, done on the bass. This is a very cool haunting bass piece that leads into uh, something that's maybe a bit of a diversion, but uh, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach prelude uh, fantasy uh, 20. Yeah, I think, uh, I think he means a fantasy on the prelude because yeah. it doesn't really sound like, yeah, you know, so, I mean, it's, you know, those, yeah. those descending kind of lines are discernible, but yeah, so none I of the harmony is there. They take the uh, this Bach idea and just for fun and inspiration uh, and 
what they do with it, if you listen, is they use this as um, sort of a stepping point for a, a work of modulations. So this tune uh, goes up and then down um, through modulations uh, using this just basic kind of theme from uh, Bach, but it doesn't follow the Bach structure. Uh, and it's just kind of an up and down exposition, but it does feature some really nice bass work. Um, and so it's not it's not really Bach, but it's using a Bach idea, and then they take it someplace else. And combined with that um, bass uh, kind of uh, interstitial or whatever, uh, I thought it's kind mm -hmm. of a cool kind of uh, inspirational piece uh, you know, um, not standard, but uh, yeah. Even different. from "Don't Get Around Much Anymore," solo piano. Then you have solo bass. Then you have this. It was kind of an interesting uh, sort of um, pattern of um, yeah pieces. Yeah. Uh, nine April in Paris, uh, Vernon Duke tune. Uh, this starts with a slow, lush treatment of the melody, uh, and as he plays the melody, there's some great baseline answers to the piano melody. Right. The piano yeah. just hangs in these fluid bass answers to that. Really nice. Uh, Cochrane teaches this one uh, very gently, uh, but his note choices and harmonizations are really creative. Uh, nice ending chord sequence too. Um, so yeah, you can't do too much uh, to this <laughs> too because it's so familiar, but uh, he, he gets some creative uh, expositions on this one too. Uh, and then we've got um, another uh, interstitial here called Between Spaces. Uh, this is another really cool bass interlude that features really rich intervals. And I was, when I was listening to this, I thought if I was a bass player, I'd want to sound just like this. Right. Yeah. I that thought so too. Tone, He's so good. Uh, it's really good. It's perfectly um, captured on the recording as well. Uh, you get the big deepness of the, uh, uh, this, the really low notes. However, they have the the bass mic on this is like that that would be just ideal on this recording yeah uh track 11 is invitation uh from the uh movie uh i think it's, this is an interesting story on this tune uh the composer is uh bronslaw caper um has become a jazz standard um You'll know the melody, but uh, it's off to a swinging intro before the uh, theme comes in at a slow tempo. Uh, some really nice cymbal work by Carvin on this one, uh, and a change up to a straight rhythm. And then there's some killer walking bass on the swing section when the tune changes up. Uh, Cochran surfs the rhythmic and tempo changes in his solo with like a lot of creative figures. Uh, comes back to the slow tempo for some slow bass and drum solos. I really like the variety of tempos and rhythms they stitch together on this arrangement uh, yeah. all effortlessly. Uh, um, that, that's obviously well thought out, but they've played it enough that it, it comes out just naturally. Yeah, they sounded uh, very busy on this piece. Everybody, yeah. Everybody's playing a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on And at high speed here. usually, yeah. Uh, 12, uh, another jazz standard, You Must Believe in Spring. Uh, Bergman... Uh, two Bergmans, Alan and Marilyn, uh, Jacques Demet and uh, Michel Legrand uh, composition. Uh, it comes in with an interesting triplet piano intro. Uh, Cochran plays this one all by himself. So here he finds a lot of melodic ideas uh, with his right hand while he keeps the left hand really minimal here. Uh, it's just giving uh, the most basic uh, harmonic support 
which is really nice because you focus on what he's doing with the melody. Uh, and at the end, he finds a new energy to kind of explore a two-handed rhythmic fi uh, figure. It's kind of like the season changes at the end. I don't know if it's gone from winter to spring or spring to summer, but uh, uh, there's, there's that notable sort of shift in it that uh, is kind of fun. 13's a monk tune, uh, Bemsha Swing. And this is just kind of a swinging fun tune uh, here. Everyone's really bouncing along on this one. And Cochrane includes some monk-inspired kind of chord clusters and disjointed lines. And we get another uh, bowed bass solo on this one, yeah. which I enjoyed a lot. I did too. Uh, 14, a Little Bee's Poem. Uh, this is a Bobby Hutcherson tune. Uh, this one comes in with something different. It's uh, kind of a studio trick. Maybe it's like a faraway sounding echoed piano, the intro that comes in and then is over a repeating uh, bass tone. Uh, and then it, it kind of forms into a swinging uh, waltz groove here. Uh, Cochrane explores the melody. He incorporates a lot of syncopated two-hand lines in his solo. And uh, uh, Leftwich gives another uh, really fast-fingered bass solo here. He has, in addition to his uh, uh, deep tone and melodic concept, he's got some technique. And Carvin has a really tight drum spot here, too. And then the tune ends up, or the album ends up with the tune uh, Then and Again, Here and Now, the title. I'm not sure what uh, this is... Uh, inspired by but it's just a short piece it starts with a piano motif uh it descends as it repeats and then cochran launches into some kind of free chiming exploration which uh, left which complements in his bass figures over some kind of simple textures by carvin and then uh, kind of non-standard ending to this collection mm -hmm. of standards um, but I really like this recording a lot. Uh, Cochrane gives us a reimagined but recognizable versions of jazz standards with a lot of new creative ideas, uh, not only in the solos, but in the arrangements. And uh, the interstitials, as he calls them, are cool. Uh, they set up things and they, they uh, also serve as a showcase for Leftwich's amazing bass sound. And yeah. they play, the trio plays tightly together. Uh, the recording is really excellent. It sounds fabulous. And uh, I guess this is sort of Cochrane's first uh, kind of standard tune uh, jazz trio. But man, I hope he does more like this because uh, this combination of players and uh, the way he's approached the materials respectfully, but finds uh, inspiration to do out of cool things is really fabulous and so I thought this, uh, this recording I listened to it once just in a uh, sort of on a whim and then I was hooked into it and uh, it's rewarded on successive listenings those are usually the albums I like the the best the ones yeah. that you uh, you know, just kind of you just kind of hear, ah, maybe this will be okay. And then yeah. it turns out to be really great. Yeah, I'm just going to repeat what you said. Uh, I really especially enjoyed the bass playing on this album. I really hope he's going to hold on to this bass player and uh, has like a, a record of how those microphones were set up because the bass on this record sounds oh, fantastic yeah. all the way through. It's really great. Um, so if I can just reiterate that, maybe it'll just get somebody else to listen to the record. Um, I thought I found this record to be warm and familiar, and that's always a good thing, you know. Uh, a lot of familiar tunes, and the solos are all tasteful and inventive, especially the bass ones. But uh, there's some really great piano 
stuff here. Yeah. This, the, the piano playing is pretty deep. Uh, this uh, this would require a few listens to get uh, to yeah, the yeah. bottom of it. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of ideas, a lot of chord changes that are pretty interesting, and that would require you know kind of a few listens to sink, for them to sink in fully. I think I'd like to hear this again, really. All right. Yeah, I really go. struck it struck it with the keyboard ones this week. Um, you did. Uh, yeah. Some really good uh, stuff here uh, by players that... Uh, well, Cochran, I, di- I didn't know, honestly. Million's name was, um, you know, uh, something that I had heard, but it had been a while ago. And then, of course, I knew Ileani Elias, but I had no idea, uh, you know, that this uh, collaboration would turn out great. But... Yeah, together and on their own, these uh, recordings all stand out uh, as something that deserves to be heard uh, in their own right. And uh, they all have some kind of uniqueness to them. So it's a good week for piano jazz. And and, and, and for uh, women composers as well. Women composers, women musicians. Music we really needed to be listening to all along. Who knew? But now we now we know we're all wiser. Where else are we'll going to get to these ideas more. put together in a package other than adult music? Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, where are you going to find all these things in one yeah, place? Where, oh, you're, that's a rhetorical question for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Look look no further. We've got all your answers, all, all your needs uh, met right here. That's right. On, on adult music. And no one should right. have that question. What should I listen to this week? Yeah, <laughs> we're just we're telling here. you. Just, yeah, come, just here. come here. That's yeah, just come Sanford here. We'll said. let you know what to yeah. listen to, and then you can just go when from I there want, on your own. When I want you know? your opinion, I'll give it to you. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> we, we <laughs> that was uh, Red Fox. That. Yeah, Red, Red Fox. Fox said that. That's Fred Sanford. Yeah, that's good. That's um, good. No, yeah, it's great. Um, so this is turned out to be a good combination, and uh, yeah. I'm trying and to an enjoyable put, week of music. I mean, we took a real chance with these. I hadn't like pre-listened to any of these yeah, uh, classical yeah. recordings before putting them on. And it turned out they turned out to be all really top flight. Yeah, especially um, that violin performances uh, and recordings. Recording, yeah. yeah, that was, that was really yeah, especially good. the one called "Female." That'll be the yeah. classical recording that I'd recommend for this week. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And to uh, be honest, I liked all three of the jazz recordings. I can't really pull one out of there. Yeah, they're good. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm just trying to. F- I've got so many now. I'm trying to. Uh, Group them uh, according to some sort of. Uh, I'm, I'm in that situation so. as well. This could, we could go on and new now that it's autumn. These new classical recordings are all coming out now, so I've got a yeah. lot of um, a lot th- that I could potentially talk about. I think I <laughs> almost have a, a vocal collection. I do okay. have a Latin jazz one, which I'm itching because we always want to get some Latin jazz in. We love uh, Latin jazz. So I think I've got music. a Latin jazz combo. And then I have also think uh, I've got an odd or non-standard kind of featured instrument uh, one. Uh, you know, yeah. Because we, we always hear lots of piano or sax recordings we've done a lot of. And we like organ, of course. But uh, I want to hear some of those other instruments, too. And I think I have right. enough to uh, feature, you know, those other instruments uh, in right. jazz too. So I'm looking forward to uh, putting one of those uh, episodes together too. Yeah, I don't know uh, if I have any more themes coming up in classical, but I do have like a, a Mozart and contemporaries coming up probably oh. next week. I, I got to see, but okay. it's the contemporaries part that's interesting uh, because um, one of the recordings is by uh, is of music keyboard music by Mozart's contemporary uh, Baldassare Galuppi. And Galuppi. he Galuppi, he 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 fig- features on um, 
the the new recording by uh, oh, what's that guy's name? The Icelandic uh, Vi- pianist, Vikinger, Vikinger Olafsson. Yeah. Olafsson, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a new Mozart contemporaries yeah. record. Yeah, we'll have to maybe we'll do that next week. But then okay, yeah. there's a gloopy uh, sonata. Mo- there are a few gloopy sonata movements on that, or one. Oh. And I, then I found a, a recording of a full recording of gloopy sonatas. So I figured we may as well pair those together and see how hey, they uh, gloopy go, go together. Let's yeah. do it. And then uh, there's some Mozart uh, string quartets, which I haven't heard in a long time and among my favorite works in the world. But we'll talk about all that next week. Yeah, sounds good. I think, I, I think I've already decided what we're going to listen to next sounds, week. In sounds like music. we're on the way. Well, we'll decide yeah, by I tomorrow. I had another program originally, but I can move it back. It doesn't matter. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got a lot to come. A lot to come. You haven't done uh, any Baroque since the uh, beginning of the uh, the new uh, the the. The new season here, as it were. Yeah. So I, got, I got one coming up, a really good one, I think. But uh, we'll have to wait another week for that, I guess. All right. Well, I'm always right. ready for Baroque, so. Yeah, me too. All right. There's well, a lot lots of, of that coming out, too. Lots of things to, to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, this has been episode 28 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, tune in next week. We've got a lot of things in the pipeline. Uh, yeah. As we said at the beginning, uh, be sure to subscribe or like, join on whatever platform you're at. Uh, send us a message at adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com if you've got a comment for us. And stay tuned for episode 29 coming up next week with a new right. theme. It's going to be a beautiful autumn, people. If you're listening to adult music, there's some good stuff coming. So stay tuned. That's right. Lots of things coming up for the fall. Uh, Things left over from the summer. New recordings coming up. Uh, We won't miss a beat with the episodes. So please stay tuned, and we'll see you again next week for episode 29 on adult music. And until then, keep listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.